1 John chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 7 through 11. Um, and as you turn there, uh, last week we began talking about how can we know that we know Jesus. Uh, is it possible to know that we will be in heaven with him, that we will inherit eternal life? Or is it just something uh, that we just sort of wish for and, and maybe, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't, but then we sin and then we're doubting and we're confused. And, but can we know that we know? And of course, John says yes. And the Holy Spirit says yes. And Scripture says yes. But it may be that if we don't know enough Scripture, and if we're not praying, and we're not in fellowship with the Spirit, and if we're not reading what John has to say here, we might have those doubts. See, the reality is that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to know that we know. And one of the ways that we can know that, kind of a an objective way that we can know is if we keep his commands. We learned this uh, back in 1 John 2, verse 3 and following. It says, um, I, I'm, uh, he says, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. And the sense of that, uh, of that in, in the original language, is that we would, it was a continual action. It's keep on keeping his commands. So it's like we're, if you want to know that you know, then you will keep on keeping his commands. It's a continual keeping. And of course, I mentioned last week that that doesn't demand, or well, it does demand, but it doesn't mean that you will have perfect obedience, but instead it does mean, you know, not perfect holiness, but a pursuit of holiness, that you will continually keep on keeping on, that you will desire and you'll have this pursuit of Christ-likeness that you're just going to continue to go back to. Um, you may stray, you may fall, you may stumble, you may sin, you may disobey at times, but it's not going to be your practice. It's not going to be your desire to stay in that pit. Your desire is going to get out of the pit and for, for you to conform your, to the image of Christ. And so, so it's not a perfect obedience that, that we will have uh, short of, uh, of heaven, but it is a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of obedience. And as we do that, then we begin to know. We have this, this evidence. We have this assurance that we are truly saved. It's because we continue to desire to draw closer to Christ. Now, I think it's important for us to stop here because we're going to transition from that evidence that we're obedient. That's Some people refer to this as the moral test, that we are, we are obedient uh, and, and that— um, uh, and now we're going to move into another evaluation, another test, another way to know that you know him. But I think it's important to stop and, and kind of uh, mention that there's something going on in our minds and in our hearts when we hear a message like this. Some of you, you heard last week's message and you're hearing this message today and you're saying, yeah, of course I know that I know him. I don't have any doubts. Well, let's be clear. And I'm not trying to cause you to doubt. But there's really only two conditions. It's kind of like, you know, a woman is either pregnant or she's not, okay? So you are either a true believer or you are an unbeliever. There's no middle ground. It's, you know, it's no uh, two ways about it. It's, it's either you are a believer and you really are saved and you will always be saved because you have been saved or you are an unbeliever. And Jesus wants us, he, he wants true believers to be sure of our salvation. Let me say that again. Jesus 
not just John, not just the New Testament, but of course, Jesus himself wants us as true believers to be sure of our salvation. But Jesus wants something else. And I can just say this, I don't need to cite chapter and verse, but I, I, I think you know this, that, that Jesus wants unbelievers, unbelievers, to be sure that they are not saved so that they can be saved. See, if you never wrestle with the fact that you're a sinner, if you never see your need for a Savior, and this is what John was talking about in chapter 1, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. You know, if you never wrestle with the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then you'll never be saved. So, if, so Jesus wants unbelievers to be sure that they're not saved. Okay, so Jesus, so let me say it this way. If you are a, if you are really a believer this morning, you're sitting here, you're listening to this sermon, if you are really a believer, then John and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, wants you to be sure uh, that you have that fellowship and that joy with, with Jesus, with the Father, that you have fellowship and you have peace with God. He, he wants us to be sure of that. But if you are not a believer, then Jesus wants you to be sure that you aren't saved, to be confronted with your sin, and so that you might repent and believe and be saved. So good news. You know, if, if you're not saved, you can be saved. Jesus wants you to be saved. And if you are saved, then you can be sure that you're saved. Amen? Amen. All right, but it gets tricky. And, and by the way, by the end of this, I think you're going to be confused. That's intentional. Just hang with me. On the other hand, Satan has a plan. Satan wants true believers to doubt their salvation. All right? Satan wants true believers to doubt their salvation, to question their salvation, to, to wonder if I've ever really been saved. And Satan wants an unbeliever to believe that they are okay, that they that sin doesn't matter, that they are basically good, that who cares? You know, you're you're decent. You know, I, I've heard people who are lost who will say, you know, I don't really need anything from God or, or for God. Like I, me and him, are, we have an understanding. Have you ever heard somebody say this? Like we have an understanding. You know, I, I kind of keep to myself. I do my own thing, and, and he does his thing. We're we're fine. See, Satan wants an unbeliever to think that everything is just fine. So Satan wants a true believer to doubt their salvation, and Satan wants an unbeliever to believe that they're okay, they're basically good, they have no sin. So the question is, if I haven't confused you enough, am I saved? Am I saved? Now, if you answer yes, or if you answer no, is it Satan, or is it the Holy Spirit Causing me, on the one hand, to question and doubt my salvation. Is it, is it Satan wanting to me to question my salvation because he wants me to think I'm okay? Or is it the Holy Spirit that's causing me to question my salvation because he wants me to be saved? To get it even more convoluted, um, am I saved or not? Is it Satan or the Holy Spirit that's causing me to have confidence in my salvation? So is Satan working in, you know, in my mind, trying to play mind tricks with me, and, and Satan is trying to, to, you know, to suggest 
that um, you know that I that have this false confidence, and He's trying to make me think that I'm saved when I'm really not. Or or is it really the Holy Spirit who's confirming? He's confirming in my heart that that I am really saved. So now I'm wondering, well. What am I supposed to do? How do I? How am I sure? And I, let's just leave that tension out there for a minute, because Satan is trying to deceive you. And Jeremiah, the prophet, says the heart is deceptively wicked. There are people. We said last week. Jesus Himself said that there are those who will say, "Lord, Lord, I, uh, didn't we do ministry in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we do? You know, in other words, don't we look like Christians?" And he says to them, depart from me, lawbreakers, I never knew you. And, and not only that, but it, there in John uh, 7 where it says that, it says there would be many who call him Lord, Lord, who are, in fact, lawbreakers. So this is why John's letter is so important. He raises these questions that cause us to wrestle and evaluate our own salvation. And even if you think you're absolutely sure, I want you to still go through the evaluation. I want you to still go through the test. And this is what we were doing last week with, uh, with John's letter, because he raises these questions and then he answers them through this self-evaluation. And so last week we asked three of those evaluation questions from chapter 1, verse 9, through chapter 2, verse 6. And the questions were simply, do I know the gospel? Do I know the, the good news of Jesus who came and died for me and then was raised on the third day? And, and if I do know the gospel, what it says in 1 John 1, 9 is that we would confess our sins because we know that we have an advocate with the Father. So we, we confess our sins, we repent, and we turn from our sins. We trust in Jesus to forgive us and save us. So do I know the gospel? That's one evaluation question we can ask. Do you know the gospel? Um, if you've never heard the gospel or if you're confused as to what the gospel says, then, you know, that may be an indication that you're not saved uh, if you go through this evaluation. Do I know the gospel? And then secondly, do I know Jesus? And if I do, then I'm going to trust him and I'm going to imitate him. Remember it said in verse 6 that we would, uh, that we would walk. It says in chapter 2, verse 6, that we would walk just as he walked, um, that we're going to imitate Jesus. We're going to live the way Jesus lived. We're going to have the thoughts and the, we're going to be conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. We're going to imitate him and we're going to trust him. So if you know Jesus, then you will trust in Jesus and imitate Jesus. And then, but how are you going to know Jesus and imitate him if you don't read his word? So that was the third question that we asked. Do I know the gospel? Do I know Jesus? Do I know his word? How can you be obedient to commands that you've never read, that you've never heard? Um, and so we, we ask this question, do I know his word? And if you do, if you really do, then it's not just that you've memorized facts and you can uh, tell me the 66 books of the Bible in order and, and you can quote verses. It, it's not just that you can answer Bible trivia and get you know, your team to win. In Bible trivia quizzes, but instead, if you know his word, then you will walk in obedience. You will live according to his word. And so there is this evaluation that we go through that we are testing to see whether or not we are in the faith. And I pray that all of you are.
Now, when it comes to obedience, you know, sometimes we think, well, you're talking about rules, you're talking about commands, and that just seems too too much. Like I don't know if I want to, I don't, I don't know if I, I want to buy into a religion where I've got to do things or not do things. Well, um, you know, these rules, these commands are good rules and commands. Imagine all the false gods who people worshipped in Jesus' day and before, where they thought, man, we've got to sacrifice our, you know, our firstborn son or or our virgin daughter. We've got to we, we we've got to sacrifice them on the altar so that we might, you know, our crops might grow. You know, like, you know, these were bad commands. These were bad things that they thought the false, you know, they, the false gods were imaginary, but in their head they thought this is what was required of them. But then God comes along and Jesus comes along and he says, what is my command? My command is to love. That's a good command. That's a great command. We want to experience the love of God. And, and so these commands of Jesus that we are to be obedient to are rewarding. You know, if I want to play basketball, but I don't know the rules, how can I enjoy the game? If, if I want to drive somewhere for vacation, but I don't know the laws of the road, how will I arrive safely? I mean, that's what rules do. They get us there safely. They allow us to have fun and enjoy life. And if I truly know his word, then I will walk in obedience because it's the loving and rewarding an enjoyable thing to do for my life, for my soul, for my family, for my church, and, and really as salt and light in the neighborhood, it's even good for the people next door that don't know him. It, it's good for us to walk in obedience and to imitate Christ. And so that's where we left things last week. We were you know, walking in obedience, imitating Jesus, confessing our sins. These are indications that we are in Christ and have come to know that we know that we know that we know that we know him. These are tests. These are evaluations. These are evidences that we are truly saved. But here in our text this morning in 1 John 2, verse 7, um, John wants to get even more specific. John wants us to know that we know that we know that we know that we know. Okay, John wants to get really specific in our self-evaluation. See, are you, and here's the question, are you really in fellowship with Jesus? Well, how will you know? See, if you tell me you're a Christian, well, praise God. By your confession, that's, that's what you claim, and that's wonderful. But, um, but lots of people claim to be Christians and aren't. Now, you say you love Jesus. Well, that's good. Hindus and Muslims also love Jesus. They at least respect him and revere him in certain ways. You say you keep the law. You keep the commands. Well, Jewish Pharisees kept the law. They kept the commands. Great. Good for you. I mean, that's a good thing, but are you saved? You say you come to church. Great. But so do wolves and weeds and false teachers and antichrists come to church. The devil, demons come to church. Okay, that, that doesn't, you know, don't pat yourself on the back because you're here this morning. The question is, are you saved? James puts it this way, and then we'll get to our text. James puts it this, this way in chapter two, verses 18 and 19. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you've made a confession. You've prayed a prayer. Somebody guided you through a prayer. Maybe you were baptized. You come to church. You go through the rituals that look like Christianity. But all that is fine. But the question remains, am I saved? Are you saved? 1 John chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 is going to give us further evidence as to whether or not we are in him. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I pray that your eyes are not blinded. I pray that you are not resting on a past emotional experience that you maybe thought was salvation. I hope you are saved. But if you're not, I hope you'll go through this evaluation. And I hope you'll ask the Holy Spirit to give you that assurance that you are saved. And if you're not saved, that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and confront you your sin and cause you to turn to him in faith. So, the tests and the evaluation that we have been work working through, the tests in this exhortation from 1 John are cumulative. They, they're building on each other. Do you, do you see what's, what's happening? It, it's building on the one before because it's, it's basically saying, you know, to know God and to abide in him, to have fellowship with him means to obey, and, and to obey is to exhibit Christ-like love, but the ultimate test of such obedient love is whether we are able to imitate Jesus by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, again, I could go back and I could say, yes, I am saved. Well, great, that is important. I mean, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then, then you'll be saved. So that confession is important, um, you know, and, and, and maybe you are truly saved, and that, that's wonderful. But we've got to push a little deeper. We've got to dig a little deeper into our own lives. And I'm not asking you to elbow the people, you know, next door to you, you know, next to you sitting in the pew. I'm, I'm begging you to go through this evaluation for yourself. Because, again, these tests are cumulative. They keep growing. It's almost like if you say, yes, I love Jesus. Of course I love Jesus. I'm here every week. And, 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 I, and I serve in the church, and I help people. And I'm a, I'm a good person. I want to be like Jesus. And, and so those are all good. But how have you practically demonstrated that to a brother or sister in this congregation 
this week. See, it gets really close to home at this point. Because I can stand at a distance from all of you, and I can say, I love Jesus. I believe that he is the Son of God, that he died and rose again, that I was a sinner and I needed him. But again, faith without works by itself is dead. So the only way we're going to put practical, um, to be able to evaluate our profession is by our action. It's by how we live among the community of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, we're supposed to love the world, we're supposed to love our enemies, all of that is well and good, but, but specifically, intentionally, that we are to love one another. So the question now becomes, not just are you saved, but do you love the brothers? Which we'll get to that question in a minute. But first, before we get to that question, I want us to see a new old command. A new old command. That sounds a little weird there, uh, but he says in verse uh, 7 and 8, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, because we've already read verses 9 through 11, we already know what this command is. The command is to love one another. It's to love your neighbor. Uh, we read earlier in our scripture reading, Leviticus 19. Let me just do the, the last two verses that we read. of Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. It says, Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This was an old command. This was something that had been written down and, and placed in scrolls and carefully studied and, and unrolled so that people could read it and they could, they could hide it in their hearts and they could understand it. In fact, this was such a common command that when Jesus asked the legal expert, the Jewish legal expert, hey, you know, what do you say the greatest command is? Of course, the response was Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The, the response from the Jewish legal expert was, well, of course, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so, of course, that was these were common. This was You could sum up everything. Jesus even said you could sum up all of the law and the prophets in those two commands. To love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this was a, a command that had been laid down some 1,400 plus years ago to them. So 3,400 years for us, but this was written down and put in scrolls and, and, and captured so that, so that people might live according to it. And by and large, the Jewish uh, community had kept it. I mean, they kind of applied it very narrowly to their own tribe sometimes. They might narrowly apply it just to the Jewish people. Um, and, and so they, they kind of had some foibles with that. They, they didn't ful fulfill it perfectly. But this was an old, familiar command. And so in that sense, it was an old command. But, but what Jesus says is in verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. So Jesus doesn't say here, yet I am writing you a different command. 
He's not saying that command is obsolete, it's overturned, it's overruled, you know, forget about that command. He's not saying I'm writing you a different command. Instead, he's saying there's a sense in which that old command is new. It's freshened up. It's, it's live. It's, it, it has come alive in, uh, in a certain way. So in a sense, it's old. You've had it written down. It's been in the Word, uh, been in Scripture for you. But in a sense, it's also new. So how is it a new command? Well, again, it's not just a different command, but it is a new command. Um, so in the sense that it's new, he says, yet I'm writing you a new command. And look at this next phrase, um, which is true in him and in you. So whatever this new command is, which we already know, it's about loving your brothers, but whatever this new command is, it's, it's true in Jesus. It's true in him. So how is it new? It's new because it's, it's, um, it's, been, uh, it's been freshened up. It's been kind of reapplied in Jesus. So it's in him. You notice that phrase in verse 8. Um, you know, yet I give you this new command uh, that is true in him and in you. So let's take that really briefly. It says in him. See, when Jesus came along, the Israelite people, the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, that had been hearing about this command to love your neighbor as yourself and, and to you know, do good to your brother, to, to do the right thing with they had been applying it and misapplying it and doing a, you know, a, a decent job with that for 1,400 years. And then Jesus comes along, and the people had never seen that command interpreted and applied in the way that Jesus himself interpreted it and applied it. The way Jesus lived it out was completely revolutionary. Do you want to know how to love your neighbor or to love your brother or sister? Do you, want, do you want to know what love is? Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' nasty feet. Do you want to know what love is? You want to see it applied and interpreted in a new way? Like, you want to see how, how Jesus shows us how to love your neighbor and to love your uh fellow brothers and sisters, well, Jesus laid down his life. He served and he sacrificed his life. He shed his blood for our sins. So this is a new command in him. It's a new command in, in a sense that, that no one has ever applied it and interpreted it and lived it out and carried it out and fulfilled it in the way that Jesus did. John 15, 13 no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. But it's interesting because John, here in 1 John, he says in verse two, uh, verse 8 again, he says, Yet I'm writing you a new command which is true in him and in you. So the revolutionary love that Jesus exhibited by leaving the glories of heaven and coming and living a humble life and then being despised and rejected, smitten and afflicted, and, and, and going to the cross and being crucified and dying for our sins, that revolutionary 
application of this great commandment, this second greatest commandment, is also true in you. I didn't hear any amens on that one. Amen. Uh, but that's really important for us because as we look at it, see, where is, G where is John getting this language from that this is a new command, it's an old command? I'm not, you know, it's old, but now it's also new. Um, you know, this isn't like borrowed and something blue. That, you know, it wasn't some trite saying. This is something that John had heard from his king, from his master, from something, something Jesus himself had said in John 15, uh, John 13, 34 and 35. So this is, it, it's almost like John is quoting Jesus. It says in John 13, 34 and 35, I give you a new command. Jesus is speaking here. He says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just, oh, hold on. Before we move on, don't think that when Jesus says, love one another, that we're talking about a feeling. We're not talking about sentimentality. We're not talking about an affection where I'm like, oh, you know, I love these people. These are, you guys are good people. I really get a warm fuzzy whenever I'm around you. You know, this is nice. We, we should do more together. Well, it's not, look at, look at what Jesus says here in John 13. It's not this new command Love one another, but look at what he says next. Just as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you. Amen. And you and, and in this way, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know. See, do you want to know? That you are in him? Do you want to know that you are saved? Do you want to know that you are a child of God? Do you want to have that assurance of salvation? Well, not only will you know if you love one another just as Jesus loved us, but everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is the evaluation. This is the test. Um, you know, again, it's not a feeling or a warm fuzzy or, you know, our love for one another is the same type of love that Jesus demonstrated when, again, he left the glories and riches of heaven and came to dwell among us Amen. and to give up his rights and to give of himself and to not to come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. And so our love for one another is marked by sacrifice, not sentimentality. Our love is action, not affection. It's something that is obedience, that we do for one another. That we live out this new command in a sense that we're not just reading it off a page and memorizing it in our head. We are living it out and demonstrating it through sacrificial acts of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. This is the kind of love that we are called to. This is the new command that is true in him and in you. It's never been seen this way before. Thank you, Jesus. You know, darkness, he ends that verse, verse 8. Um, he says, uh, you know, and, and the true light, oh, excuse me, because... 
It's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. See, darkness is worldliness. And the light is the revelation of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. And, and so for us, coming into the light, coming into fellowship, it is to, to say that we're leaving selfishness and we're leaving worldliness and we're coming into fellowship with God in community with Jesus' family. And that is the love that he mentions. And so now we come to our question, our evaluation question, our diagnostic question. Um, we've asked, do, do I know the gospel? Do I know Jesus? Do I know his word? Do I know his commands? But now we're asking this, do I love my brother? Do I love my brother? Is the kind of love, is the quality of my love for you revolutionary and sacrificial in the way that Jesus loved me? See, we can't squirm our way out of this one. We can't just say, oh yeah, I love, I love Calvary Baptist Church. Such a great, just good people, good people. You know? So friendly. We can't wiggle our way out of this. No. How are, you, how are you acting in love toward one another? It says uh, in verse 9 through 11, it says the one, and, and so here's the danger. Uh, am I deceiving myself? Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until and see, when we elevate the, the, the definition of what love is, that, that really gets kind of scary. I, I hope that we're falling under conviction. And, and maybe you're, you are truly saved, but we still need to be convicted of this, right? We can still be truly saved and not be carrying out this command well. And, and we need to improve. We want to grow more like Jesus in our love for one another. And so I'm not saying that if you, you know, if you haven't, helped out a brother or sister in need in the past month, then you must be, you must be lost. No, I'm, I'm asking you to evaluate yourself based on what Scripture is teaching. That, that now we have this, this new understanding, this, this fresh expression of this old command, this ancient command that, that Jesus fulfilled in himself sacrificially. And so now we're looking at this greater expanded understanding of what love means toward one another and when I look at it and I read this verse, verse 9, the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother. Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I hate my brother. But hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. And then on the positive end, verse 10, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So do I love my brother? Well, we might be grappling with this in our own minds, like, well, you know, I don't really feel like I hate my brother, but, but again, that's not the question. Do you love your brother? And not just a feeling or a sentiment or, or an affection or a friendliness, but do you really love?
your brother in this new way, this new expanded way that Jesus has, has already modeled for us? Do you love your brother or sister in that way? Because if you love your brother or sister, then you remain in the light and there's no cause for stumbling. There's no cause for doubts. There's no cause for, you know, for problems because you know it wasn't your, you know, uh, your earning your salvation. It was something that Jesus alone could do. Look, let's, let's make it practical. Uh, going back to James, I, I mentioned something he said from verse uh, 18 and 19, but I want us to see what James said in chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. You know, I might say something like, well, I love my brothers and sisters at Calvary Baptist Church, but I don't really have any time for them. You know, my, kid, my kids have soccer practice on Sundays. Going to church isn't convenient for me right now. It's, it's just not easy for me to come together with my brothers and sisters. I don't really have the time. Um, is that love or is that hate? You remember when Jesus said those words about, you know, I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry. You fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me a cup of cold water. Uh, you, you took care of me in those ways. And, and people were, were questioning, like, hey, Jesus, when did we see you in prison? When did we see you were hungry or, or all of these things? In fact, if you go through our hall and you head towards the, the nursery area, th this quote is, is laid out very nicely on our wall. Um, when did I see you hungry? When did I see you in prison? But, but I want you to understand that when Jesus was saying those words, he was encouraging the people to, to do practical acts of love and expressions of, of loving kindness towards one another. That was how you fulfilled his command to love one another. And he's saying that you are to do these even for the least of these, even for the people in the, in the body who are not really all that lovable or you know, maybe they're hard to hard to get to know. Maybe they're not as friendly as you'd like for them to be. And so, you know, but even for the least of these, even for the least important of these, even for the least wealthy of these, that we would do these things for him. And and here's here's how that had to be played out. Let's go back to the first century when the apostles were uh, being tormented, and some of them were being thrown in prison. How do you live out this command to give a cup of cold water, or to visit in prison, or to give food. Well, imagine if you're being persecuted for your faith as the first century apostles and, and many of the Christians of that time were. They were beginning to experience persecution. Some were even being thrown in prison. And imagine that your brother or sister in Christ is in prison. And of course, Jesus said, you, you visit when you visit one of these, you, you, it's like you're visiting me. If you don't, it's like you're not visiting me. Um, and, and so you know that your brother or sister, uh, you know, somebody came in and rounded up a bunch of Christians and put them in prison. And by the way, this is happening all around the world, too. So we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted areas. But just imagine that first century context where they're trying to live out Jesus' commands. And, 
and, and one of their brothers or sisters in Christ is thrown in prison. Well, in that day and often around the world today, the prison systems aren't like they are here in America where you're given three, three square meals and you know, your basic subsistence is taken care of. But in a lot of places, if somebody didn't bring you food, you would starve. And in the first century, that was clearly uh, a, a danger. Is if you're thrown in prison, you're probably going to die in prison. The guards aren't doing you a, a service. They're not going to bring you, you know, a catered meal every day. Um, it, it's up to somebody to come and bring that to you. That's why Jesus said this. If, if you see me in prison, uh, visit me in prison. But imagine if you are a Christian and you know that this persecution is coming down on you. But if you bring food to your brother or sister in prison... That's going to mark you as a brother or sister, as a Christian. And so it's dangerous to love your brother or sister in that way. And this is just a, one example. But the point I'm making here is that in that case, if you're going to bring food, then the soldiers are going to probably think, well, you know, who's bringing in food? Let's ask them some questions. Who are, who are you? What do you believe? What's your, what's your testimony about this Jesus character? And they might throw you in prison. And now who's going to feed anybody? And so the point in bringing all that up is because Jesus said it. And also we're learning that we're to love one another in practical ways. The, the, the point of all of this is to say loving our brothers and sisters might cost us something. And we need to realize that and be ready for that. And so as we conclude, I, I want to just ask you. To take a hard look at how you spend your time. See, we have Jesus as the example. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for us. The question is, how do you spend your time? You're not going to do the same exactly thing as Jesus did. But how are you spending your time? Is it spent with other brothers and sisters throughout the week? Is it spent just one and a half hours or so on a Sunday? Uh, just checking in and saying hello and then on your way out? Or, or is it something that you are living in community with other Christians that you can have this, uh, you know, model this kind of revolutionary love with? So how are you spending your time? I mean, some of us lead such crazy, busy lives that we barely spend time with, you know, some of you are barely spending time with your children and your wife, let alone, you know, church is kind of like third, fourth, fifth place in your life. The question is, what are we doing with our time? Look at how you spend your money. Is your money spent on bills and on luxuries and creating a comfortable life for yourself? Or is your money spent and invested sacrificially helping those in need and fueling the mission of the church? How are you spending your, your money? How are you using your resources? Are they bringing glory to God, or they are, or, or are they establishing a kingdom for yourself? Look at how you use your talents. How many Christians are you are you serving with your gifts? The way God has uniquely blessed you with certain gifts and abilities. How are you using those to edify the body of Christ? These are just a few questions that we can ask because I'm under conviction. 
and that the Spirit may be working in your life as well, that, that we're under conviction, that, you know, maybe, maybe as we think about this, we say, yes, I, I truly am saved. I know that I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and so thank the Lord for that assurance. Thank you, Jesus, that you're giving us that confidence, but, but we still see this area of improvement. Or, or maybe you're thinking, well, I've always said I'm a Christian. But I'm beginning to realize that as I look at the gospel, as I look at Jesus, as I look at his word, and as I look at this idea of loving one another, I, I realize that I, I, don't, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I don't believe that I'm a Christian because I'm such a sinner and I haven't really placed my faith fully in Jesus and allowed him to be king of my life. Or maybe you're walking in for the first time this, uh, this morning and you've never been in church and you're hearing the gospel for the first time and you're realizing that Jesus has done something for you that is revolutionary, that he has laid down his life. He bled and died to pay the penalty for your sins. And so maybe for the first time you're looking at this and you're going, man, I want to follow so I'm encouraging you as we bow our heads and, and close our eyes that we would spend a moment just asking the Lord to convict us of sin, to put us on the right path, and if there are those here who are not saved, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, we come before you humbly, recognizing that we are sinners. We continue to sin. We continue to, to disobey. But Lord, we thank you that our assurance is not in our works or the things we do or don't do. Our assurance is in the work that Jesus did. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That we have an advocate with the Father. And we have an atoning sacrifice. That Jesus himself is the one who has paid the penalty for my crimes. And so I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would settle in our own hearts where we stand with you that today would be the day of salvation for any who are far from you, who are in sin. And that for those of us who are in Christ, that we would continue to conform more fully and more deeply to the image of Christ. And that you would be glorified through all of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray.